Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator, Nancy Adair. addiction we might oh stories about recovery too mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart sensitive people into liars thieves gluttons and whores liars and thieves and gluttons and whores oh liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the podcast where we share with you stories from the dark and the light side of both addiction and recovery. Every week, I bring you topic-focused episodes and experts in the field of substance abuse and also friends and people who are in recovery themselves. So today's guest is both an expert and someone in his own recovery. He is a longtime friend and colleague of mine, Steve Adario. So you're on the air with Nancy Adair and Steve Adario. <laughs> Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Nancy. Hi. And Steve, when I say a longtime friend and colleague, we share many things together, including a recovery journey and a history of doing mental health counseling and life coaching. And Steve and I have also produced a workshop together called the Creativity Connection. So I'd like to um, share all of it in the next 20 to 30 minutes. <laughs> so I'll start out, Steve, by asking you, was there something that tipped the scale, so to speak, um, that brought you into recovery from addiction? There are so many things that brought me into, into recovery. Um, and frankly, I tried finding relief I didn't know it was relief, but I tried finding relief for a lot of years uh, from my own discomfort. And maybe we can talk about you know, the inception of that at some point. But what brought me into recovery, um, formal recovery, I tried many different programs over the years. Uh, never stayed with them very long. Never found success, real success. Uh, but my most successful recovery journey has been in really when I entered food addiction recovery. Um, that was 19 years ago. Came into this recovery program really just thinking maybe I could lose weight. What I learned was that I, I was using food like I had used drugs, like I had used alcohol, like I had used sex, like I had used so many things in my life, relationships and as a way to find peace and recovery, release, relief. And you know, this program, the recovery, when I really started to work the program, being surrounded by people who were actually really working 
program and find their success, I actually found that, you know, that understanding that what I was doing was seeking relief, not achieving it and continuing to feel misery, shame, doubt, and insecurity. So the very substance that was offering you relief caused you pain. Yeah, I wouldn't have, I didn't know that. Every life event, every situation had, had caused me discomfort. Often didn't know what I was uncomfortable about, but I knew that I felt like a misfit that had a mind and body that didn't work normally. And so give me a drink, I'll, I'll, I'll laugh more, I'll be funnier more. And, but that didn't do it. Really the food was probably the, the biggest thing that helped me feel calm in my life. One person I interviewed, Susan Pierce Thompson, she said that sugar and flour are the other white powders. And mm -hmm. I certainly felt that the food addiction, binge eating in particular, was like an opiate drug for me. As soon as uh, an opiate user puts that heroin in their arm, they feel the relief. And mm -hmm. I'm the same way if you give me large volumes of food in particular, It'll just take me out. I'll literally pass out. I didn't know any of these words before, though. I didn't know I was passing out from eating too much. I didn't know I was using food as a drug. Like yourself, I knew I wanted to lose weight. I, um, I thought today while you were speaking that so many addicts and alcoholics that I work with talk about they just want to quit drinking to get their life together. They want to quit for a month or maybe a few months. And that's very similar. I think that's mirrored by this. I want to come into recovery just to lose 20 pounds or I want to lose 50 pounds. And then I'll go back to my life is what you said. <laughs> go, back to my life. go back to the shambles I was making of my life. Back to, to a world where I was uncomfortable all the time. I mean, it underscores to me that I had such limited awareness, self-awareness, and others. I just knew that I was uncomfortable. Things that I could put in me um, or experiences I could have that could lift me up. And yet they don't really. You know, I think well, that too. Are, and then they even stop doing that. And That's at least true in my experience. That first bite was met with self-hate and remorse and guilt and you know it it just wasn't working at the end it wasn't working anymore and i hear people tell me that about drugs and alcohol all the time like they you know they look for that hit and then it's it's just not even available so any experiences back in active addiction steve where other people would look at what you were going through with a sense of humor where you were actually feeling quite desperate? I would say that there are a lot of his life experiences where he didn't say active addiction. Even There's so many experiences that I've had that I look back at and I um, remember when I feel compassion for that younger self. One that actually comes up for me as you're, as you're asking this is just remembering as a child. Now I was, uh, my mother tells me that I was a quote, normal-sized child until I was six years old. And after that, I became chubby and then fat and then obese yeah, in my younger years. And 
and I, and I was about 12 years old. And this is how my, my crazy thinking, and again, it's, I was in the food at this point, at, and I was a child, and I had an opportunity to go horseback riding with a group of family friends that I knew and I was comfortable with most of the time. And we got stables where the horses were, and I refused to get out of the car because I was afraid. If you don't come in, you're going to sit in the car while we go horseback riding. And I said, yes, I want to go. Yes, I want to go. Um, well, I did want to go. But I got there, and my fear just, I, I sat in the car. I, God knows how long. It felt like three years. Um, it just felt like an eternity. And I was miserable and scared and felt shame. We went to an ice cream shop afterwards. And I got ice cream. Of course, I got you know only what I could get, you know, in in public. And but you know, I, I I mean, I ate for days after that. Now that's eating, but I mean, that's just a small example of what happened over and over and over again in my life. Feel that discomfort. Go out to dinner with friends. Get drunk. Drive home. Not having any memory of driving home or using drugs and alcohol, and then on the way home, stopping at a, a bakery or a, or a grocery store and buying food so that when I get home, I would have something to, to binge on. I look back at those things now, and I, you know, again, I feel, um, then I felt shame. Now I look back and I, I poor kid or poor young man, you know, I was 51 when I, when I truly came into recovery. Um, so it wasn't just a young man, a lot of years of struggle. But I look back at those times now and I can, I can chuckle and think, oh, you know, that poor kid. Actually, when you described a 12-year-old sitting in the car while people go horseback riding, because it is ours, you know, it, <laughs> and uh, I, I just felt close to tears with compassion for that little boy you know it's oh and yet he knew (laughs) he was told told, put it that way he he didn't know well and that you know that yes I really want to go because that really tells me that that little boy really wanted the experience of horseback riding yeah he was just too terrified to take you know to have the courage to take the step to get on the horse and so tell me about uh, you said you were 51 when you came into food addiction recovery, and you said the words true recovery. So what is that indicative of? Are you getting down to the the layer, you know, like, because you mentioned all kinds of other addictions with uh, drugs and alcohol and sex and relationships. And why did you say food is the true recovery? I've used a lot of substances, forgot to mention cigarettes, you know, smoke <laughs> years. Each of those things, for some reason or another, I, I, I actually put down in earlier years. I was 30, maybe 31 when I stopped smoking. And there were physical issues that I was having. I was having trouble with my throat and, and I put it down. I had had just one too many blackouts, drinking and driving, never with any adverse impact, but I feared that 
Um, and I stopped drinking. And I had, I tried many other drugs. They never really did it for me. And I put it down. I stopped using cocaine and I stopped using um, speed. You know, I mean, just, I'm just trying to think of different substances that, that I have, may have used at different times. And, and what I mean by true recovery is I was putting those down, period. <laughs> I was able to do that, but I was not able to put down the food. And I didn't realize that that was a problem for me in, in terms of an addiction that I could actually put down. And, and with putting it down, seeing some really, truly amazing changes in my life. And so when I say true recovery, it's when I came, I showed up, came to a meeting, and, um, and then I came to believe. I, I started to understand, uh, have a spiritual concept, you know, a higher power, and to live in that and trust that, and learning to pay attention to what's going on in my head. I mean, before recovery, all I knew was that I was anxious. I was on antidepressants. I was on anti-anxiety medications. I knew I was anxious and unhappy. When I came into recovery, I began this very slow process of beginning to hear my thoughts and recognize my feelings and know how all, all those intertwine and created my behaviors and my reactions to life and that I could actually change that. Beautiful. So you said there are a few amazing things that have happened as a result of really coming into recovery and working a 12-step program. Would you mention a few that you're particularly grateful for? I did use the word amazing and amazing because they're amazing to me. They're really small things, probably in the scheme of things, scheme of the world. Uh, and yet they're really, they are really valuable. Recently, I attended a, a workshop. Uh, I went away to Vermont to, to a, 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 a painting workshop. I play around with, with artistry, with painting and and I showed up and quickly learned that the people there were what I would refer to as experts. Um, you know, they they have they have they have the proof. They have won awards. They they are living a professional artist life. That's not me. And at the same time, what's amazing about it is that I was able to show up. That I was able to be there. I was able to notice those those thoughts and those feelings of insecurity. And I didn't have to, I didn't have to hide in the food. I didn't have to hide in the drink. I didn't have to hide in my fear. I, I showed up. I kept, you know, figuratively, figuratively and maybe even purposefully calling on my higher power and saying, you know, in simple terms, God help me <laughs> in my own head. God help me. Um, so when I needed to show up for the uh, happy hour, I don't drink, I don't eat snack, and I'm not really comfortable with people I don't know. So what what is a happy hour? But drinking, snacking, and talking with people you don't know. And I showed up and just was able to 
relax, not be anxious, not be depressed, not be fearful, not run away, not even entertain the idea. Just take deep breaths, be okay with what is, what's present. In that ability to, to relax and be present, what happens and what happens is that my brain relaxes, that I am much more able to be open and creative. I can hear. I mean, that, that's part of what happens then when we go into stress mode. You know, our ability to hear and see things just it, our worlds narrow and focus in and, and that didn't happen. That's a miracle to me to be eight, 19 years into recovery uh, and have ha having had many experiences like that where maybe maybe my thoughts are like, mm, I'm not good enough, but I don't have to I don't have to live in the shame of that, which is what drew. What, what what was existing through all of my early years. And you really didn't let the fear win, like that little boy that stayed in the car. You could have driven to Vermont and decided to turn around when you got there, but you didn't. Right. You yeah. went in, you showed up, and you participated, and you created. Oh, yeah. I know that I'll be one of the lucky people who gets to see the things that you're creating, you know, and I do think you're a wonderful artist, a wonderful color, you know, watercolorist. And I wonder how much your being clean and sober and living a clean and sober life allows you to explore that aspect of your life now. Yeah, I'm working on a piece that workshop was, it, it's been several weeks ago, I am still working on one of the paintings. I would never have the patience. Um, I would never have the, the ability to focus and I would never have had the willingness to walk through this slowly. Um, so what I've been doing is I've been doing uh, every day, frankly, I'm doing these little test, test strips to figure out what is my next step on, on the larger painting. And that would never have happened because I would have been, it would have been so imperfect and I wouldn't have known where to go, or what to do, and I wouldn't have allowed any room for creativity and I would have thrown it away. Or I would have put it in a pile of other things that are unfinished and thought maybe someday when, I'm, when, I'm, when I am an artist, I'll finish it. <laughs> And now I'm practicing being an artist, you know, without needing to be perfect, just learning. That, again, is another miracle and part of recovery for me. And I know that you're really interested in the mind and neuroscience. How does that impact creativity? There are so many pieces of that. First of all, as a child, I was always feeling... Uh, insecure, uncomfortable, that discomfort carried through well into my adult years. It prevented me from taking risks. It, it actually created a very passive personality style. I just thought there was something defective with me, something wrong with me. Other people can talk, I can't talk. Other people can, can draw, I can't draw. Other, uh, you know, other people can do anything in my professional world. Other people can do that. I had a, a boss that, you know, approach me. Um, that there had been a job advertised, position advertised for three months, three months. 
Um, she came to me and she said, why haven't you applied for this job? <laughs> and I said, I can't do that. And she, she challenged that in terms of brain science. I, I've become aware that this is, this is the way the brain works. We all inherited a, a brain structure. We have parts. Survival brain is very well-developed. And that was what was going on in my brain. My survival brain said the first thing that came up was fear. And yet I didn't have any capacity, any uh, understanding, any tools to be able to go beyond the fear. So I lived in the fear. And in recovery, I started to learn tools and practices that actually, actually helped me in very small ways. My sponsor told me to raise my hand when, I, when they were looking for people to read. And I, in my head, I said, I can't do that. I have to walk in front of Rome. I can't do that. Uh, I, I might not be able to read clearly, whatever. Instead of that, she, she insisted. And I you know, very fortunately said yes, raised my hand. And I learned that, yes, I'm fearful. And I'm standing in front of the room. And I read. And I sat down. And, and I didn't die. You know? uh, in fact, nobody made fun of me. In fact, over time, people said, I'm so glad that you read. You know, little things like that just started to help me begin have to shift that automatic process in my brain that said, warning, 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 danger run away or fight back, yell and scream, or hide, get, take a drug. Now my brain was starting to say, oh, I can walk through it. I can take a different kind of action. I can succeed and one step after another get to the point where now I can show up at a, a, a professional workshop and not let my not good enough thought saying you should go home. You don't belong here. You're not like them. I stayed. I belonged there. I got lots of help, lots of support, really good feedback. I would have lost that had my brain been functioning that, the way that it had always learned to do. And again, it's really based on evolution. The brain we get. So now we have an opportunity to learn how to work with it instead of against it, which is what I was doing with the drugs and the alcohol and the food, et cetera. Okay, so I'm going to make some connections here, our creativity connections. You tell me if I'm on track. We exist with a survival brain. Uh, that's what we've inherited. There is probably no other greater risk, in my estimation, speaking personally, than to do my art. In fact, the current quilt that I'm working on is titled Naked, because that's what I feel when I really show up for my own art. I feel naked, and it's not comfortable. And so what tip do you have, Steve, for listeners about, I don't know if we have to trick that reptilian part of the brain that's still, you know, stuck in survival, even when there are no lions, tigers, or bears chasing us any longer. What, uh, what do we do to, I know you don't banish the fear, but how do you 
embrace it or take that first step? One of the one of the roots to this is it starts off with being able to look at and recognize what's truly happening inside of our mind, body, and our our spirit. That's not something that one can easily do on on their own. Since we can't know what we don't know. We can only know what's inside of our heads now from our experience, from our learning. We can only know that. And so it really does beg to be, to find ourselves in safe, supportive environments with others who who may be doing very similar things. There are practices that, that I use and that I, people that I work with use and just making it really simple you know, without having to have any expectation of change. Uh, when I came into recovery, I didn't have, all I had an expectation was to, was to learn the right way, to eat, the right foods to eat and when to eat them. You know, it was very concrete. But I got more than that. But I got it was get up in the morning and do a 30-minute quiet time. What does that got to do with food, right, or eating or losing weight? But it really, it really was about, and then we talked about, I mean, a sponsor would say, did you do your 30 minutes of quiet time? And we talked about it. Having the opportunity in this situation, there was someone who was, um, I was very fortunate to have someone who knew and understood this, who would be able to say, let's talk about what's, what's your quiet time like? What's, what's, what thoughts are going on inside of your head? What emotions are you feeling? Um, and I would tell her, like, you know, well, I'm thinking about, the grocery list and I'm thinking about is it you know is my 30 minutes done yet and but I really wasn't aware of my my, my real thoughts that were spinning in my head and she'd say what feelings are coming up and I'd say nothing <laughs> you know I, it was over time and practice that I learned to be able to identify my thoughts my feelings to understand that they had, they had an impact on my life they had an impact on my behavior and that they had an impact on how I exist in my world. So building some level of, of a, awareness uh, of that internal environment is really valuable and, and important. How people do that is really find a therapist, join a meditation group, hire a coach. If you're doing it on your own, then just do it really simply. And I often say to people, if I find I can't do it, I can't sit down, and do 30 minutes of quiet time, do 15. You can't do 15, do five. You can't do five, do one. <laughs> if you can't do one, you know, just can you take, can you practice each day taking a mindful deep breath? You know, put, put a timer on your phone every hour and do a mindful deep breath. Now, again, it begs that question of, of what does that have to do with recovery or creativity or anything, my belief in, in neuroscience will support, a lot of the research will support this, is that we are so habitual in our behaviors. I mean, my, my eating food was a habit. Uh, we are so habitual in our behaviors that we don't notice what's happening and we have to start by doing things outside of our comfort zone, stepping into awareness and then aiming for those things that we really want. You brought to mind just today, earlier today, I was having one of those moments while creating when I thought, I, 
I've fucked it all up. <laughs> like this is just worthless. And I had someone say to me, you, you don't use enough contrast in your work. And I just went to that negative thought right away. Mm. And then I think because of the practices you've just talked about, about looking for the supports and, and being mindful, I, I no longer come to a full stop when I hit the speed bump while I'm creating something. Mm. And today I brought to my mind within the last year, my sister had been in town with a friend while I was away from home and stayed in my home. And she took out the quilts and threw them on my bed to show her friend. And you know, never asked. There was no permission given. And and then when I got back home, she told me how much her friend Connie, you know, loved the quilts that I'd created. And I was like, oh my God, I just, you know, they were in a, a chest, you know, a cedar chest. And then I also thought about, and I'm literally having these thoughts today. I thought about my best friend's husband's reaction, which I thought, oh, the guy's not going to really love this quilt. And I'd put a quilt out on my dining room table for my friend Betsy to see. But it was her husband, John, who just was like so loud and boisterous. And that's phenomenal. That's fantastic. I love this. You know, he said, you did this. How'd you do this? You know, it's like, uh, so I just allowed myself to bring those champion voices in today. Yeah at the very point where I had to cut something and, and redesign it because it wasn't working. And it, it's just, it, I keep coming back to, I think it's going to stay with me for a long time. That image of you as a child sitting for hours in a hot car. I imagine it was hot because you're horseback riding, you know, it's, um, and I think, you know, I would let those small speed bumps bring me to a complete stop. And that's dangerous, you know, and sad. Anything that you want to share with the listeners before we end today's podcast? I think if I was talking with someone who was trying to figure it out, take a step forward, no matter how frightening it is. There are people out there. Sometimes we know them and sometimes we don't. Um, we know them, we need to enlist them. And, and if we don't know them, then maybe that's the next step is to seek out a champion, seek out support, seek out something outside of ourselves because <laughs> left to my own devices, right? If, I, if I'm relying on what I know and what I think and what I feel and, my, and what I have been receiving from that reliance is fear, doubt, and insecurity, then I need to take a risk and do something different, anything different, frankly. Reach out for help. I hear you saying we start out with the survival brain and we're in fear and we need to take the first step. Sometimes that's taking one mindful breath. Look for support. Take the risk to ask for help. I love to say that it takes a lot of courage to ask for help. It is not a, a weakness. And having that self-compassion, 
again, I, I will hold on to that image of the little boy for a long time, because I, I do think that's, if we can hold on to that compassion for ourselves at any age, um, it's really a beautiful thing. So thank you so much, Steve, for having the courage to share your story with us today and with all our listeners. Thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. I went into Roots Cafe the other day, and I ran into a friend of mine who I happen to know is clean and sober. And he was sitting with his nephew, who I also learned is in sobriety. And I told him about our podcast, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And he just loved the title and said, oh, I want that on a t-shirt. And I said, well...